0: Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I am your host, Shane Phillips. Our co-host today is Mike Lenz, and our interview features Professor Elizabeth Delmel from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Our topic this time is transit investments and eviction. If you spent any amount of time working on or talking about transit or housing, you've probably heard someone raise the concern that building transit infrastructure, especially major investments like rail lines, could lead to the displacement of the people who currently call that place home. There is a perennial question of how we can invest in places in ways that benefit existing households and ideally also welcome new ones, rather than simply replacing the former with the latter. I think it's taken as a given that investments like this do lead to some amount of gentrification or displacement, But Dr. Delmel's findings in this paper and in her earlier work really challenge that assumption. The reality is that there's just not much evidence that transit infrastructure and other improvements lead to evictions or other kinds of displacement. But as we discuss, research often looks at averages or means and displacement is often experienced at the extremes. Just because we don't see much impact at a neighborhood level It's still entirely possible that some individual households are negatively affected even if the average household benefits. During the interview we dig into some of the very valid origins of concerns about displacement, what we might be missing in studies like these, and some possible explanations for why transit and other investments don't usually seem to lead to the displacement that many people fear. I also finally learn what a geographer is. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and you can contact me with any questions or show ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Let's bring on Professor Delmel. All right, our guest this time is Dr. Elizabeth Delmel, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of North Carolina Charlotte Department of Geography and Earth Sciences. Uh, We'll just jump right in and say... Welcome to the show, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to do this.
0: Professor Delmel earned her bachelor's degree at Madison James Madison University, master's at SUNY Buffalo, and PhD at UNC Charlotte, and I think is our first geographer on the podcast. Um, so let's just start off and let me ask, why geography and you know what drew you to it? This is kind of my opportunity, I guess, because I've never fully understood what geography is as a, as a field and, and how do you distinguish it from things like urban planning? Because it seems like a lot of the research does overlap in different ways.
1: Sure, well, um, so how did I get to geography? It's, it's a little bit of a story. Um, so I went to, to James Madison University, which is in Virginia. And I came from New York State, so I didn't really know anybody. And I was at my summer orientation. And at one point they said, okay, now go to whatever major you want to study. And so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So half of the students went to psychology and half went to business. And then there was this girl with a little sign that said geography. And she was all by herself. And I said, I wonder what that's all about. Um, So I went over to her and she was very excited. She said I was the first person all summer who had come. And she took me on a golf cart up to the department and they were all excited to have me. And they handed me this So you became
0: a... You became a geographer out of pity, it sounds like. (laughs) Well, I think I'm just
1: (laughs) naturally drawn to kind of obscure things, less popular things. So they gave me this VHS, which was about the new geography, and it talked about GIS and remote sensing and cartography. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And I didn't know you could do that for a job. So I signed up and I was, you know, the first student, the the only freshman, I think. The rest of the majors eventually stumble into geography, haven't taken a course. Uh, But I stuck with it even now to today. Um, But anyway, eventually I settled in kind of merging this GIS, GI science with urban geography because I wanted to study cities. It reminded me of playing SimCity as a kid. Mm Uh, which Many brings of me to.
0: Us planners yeah. come from that, I think. <laughs>
1: of course. That's first true. with Legos, then SimCity, and then you know, GIS. Right. So, your question of what's the difference between urban planning and, I guess, urban geography, I think at a research level, there's a lot of overlap, especially at the academic sense. But mm-hmm. um, maybe more practically, I would think that geographers. Kind of simply, we don't make plans. (laughs) We don't necessarily (laughs) have to figure out how to implement something. So we don't really study, you know, the zoning laws or the regulations or um, all of those mechanisms that go into making something happen. I would say that maybe we're a little bit more evaluative where we would say, okay, what are the implications across space as a result of the plans that a planner put into place. So how does that impact residents and the environment and and so on? But then we might come up with a recommendation, but we don't know how to, to actually implement that recommendation.
0: <laughs> That's <clears throat> nice to just put that on someone else. Um, right. Mike Lenz is back as our co-host today and is I'm coming back. Us for the for the first time from London, where he will be on sabbatical for about a year. Um, and actually elizabeth is sort of on sabbatical uh she's in her sabbatical location although still teaching right. and doing a real sabbatical starting uh with the next year but in the hague and i am in los angeles right now so we've somehow managed to bring this all together uh i guess we can ask both of you how is how is europe going so far
1: For for me europe is is fantastic <laughs> it's everything i thought it would be of living in the netherlands and biking around and, and being in a city and not having a car. Um, so I haven't reached the winter months of, of gloom. That's when I'm told <laughs> maybe it won't be so great, but right now the sun is shining and um, it's just after being you know locked down for a year, not going anywhere, just being in another country just feels so great.
0: Mike, how is, uh? is, you're on like week one.
1: Yeah, so we, we well,
2: we're, we're week two um, and, you know, I, I certainly have a lot of overlap in, in experiences with Elizabeth so far. Um, it's incredible to I have an incredible opportunity first to, to be able to kind of, you know, get a, away from some of the day to day responsibilities of UCLA. I'm sure I'll miss aspects of teaching, but I, I won't miss the time that it takes <laughs> um, to do so and the opportunity to be able to as elizabeth put it you know get out of you know our various covid bubbles in some ways and be in a city like london is really phenomenal um you know we're we're very centrally located you know our our we sold our cars before we came here so, wow. so, so those did we. Are, those, are, <laughs> those are gone um, you know i we can walk around all over the place and and, and pick things up and walk the kids to school. Um, It's it. I mean, the the amount of opportunities and privileges I have right now is, is really astounding, but also there's a ton of decisions to make. Like, I haven't moved out of my house in ten years, and the the amount of cleaning it took to get out of that was crazy. The amount of stuff that we're buying right now to that we just jettisoned in Los Angeles is crazy. It feels very.
0: We're all talking to each other on Zoom right now, and it's just yeah. empty bookshelves behind empty. you. Right yes, now. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Those those bookshelves will never be filled. It's just <laughs> the, I mean, yeah. Got, what's the point? Know, I've got, got all this this empty space in here which is great but um yeah we 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 would spend all year buying things if we wanted to fill this place up which we won't do cuz that would make no sense but um you know we need towels right i mean we just need random things that's my, that's my one complaint shane i need towels
0: i think they have towels in london i think you'll figure they it out i got them
2: they're expensive but it's fine <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so the paper we're here to discuss today was published in Housing Policy Debate, and it's titled Investigating Transit-Induced Displacement Using Eviction Data. Your co-authors, we should note, are Isabel Nielsen and Alexander Bryant. And to put it briefly, your paper explores this question of whether investments in public transit, and specifically rail stations in this case, lead to more evictions in neighborhoods that might be at risk of gentrification. So this has been, you know, a very recurring question, certainly in planning uh, that question of can you invest in communities without displacing the people who currently live there? The fear, of course, is that you can't or that you can only do those kinds of investments after you've taken really strong precautionary measures with, you know, anti displacement and that kind of thing um, before you make the investments. You know that, can, and that can be things like rail lines. Um, that's a common one, but it can also be parks. And it can even be simpler things like bike lanes, bus lanes, bus shelters, that kind of stuff. So you and your co-authors, before we get to this paper, you all have a, a larger body of work on this and kind of similar questions around neighborhood change. So before we get to this paper, could you just share some of that work with us?
1: Yeah, sure. So we have looked at this question on the impact of transit stations on neighborhoods and gentrification and displacement from a lot of perspectives, both quantitatively, qualitatively, from local case studies and nationally. Um, I feel like right now we're kind of wrapping up all of this research. And so if I look back and reflect on and say, what's the big conclusion that I would draw from this work? I would say that on its own, something like a transit station or a park or a bike lane will not automatically, radically transform a neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. There needs to be certain preconditions in order for some transformation to happen or some changes even to happen. Um, So one of the important things that needs to be occurring in the city is that there needs to be a lot of population growth and demand Mm -hmm. for housing, right? Um, So if you take an example like Buffalo, where I, I lived very briefly, And they have experienced rapid population decline. And they built a light rail line, I think, in the 1990s. And in order for that light rail line to cause the city to suddenly revitalize or gentrify, because not a lot of people are moving in, it would mean that enough people already living in the city would have to decide that suddenly they want to get up and move and live close to that light rail station, right, right. Uh, and ignore all of the other reasons why they decided not to live in that location in the first place, which is probably yep. because they don't have the right schools, they don't have the right housing, the crime mates, and so on, right? So without the strong population growth, I don't think anything will happen. So in a city, though, like Charlotte, which does have a lot of population growth, lots of people moving in from Buffalo, um, <laughs> they're looking for housing, right? You could, in some cases make the case that such an investment might make a neighborhood attractive enough that these people who are moving in decide to live there. But again, I think you need these same preconditions because when people make location choices, it's not on one variable. They're not saying, oh, this has got a train. That's it. (laughs)
0: That's right. right. They're
1: looking at the schools. They're looking at the rest of the factors in the neighborhood. So if that investment is coupled with other desirable things that are people consider when they choose a home, like these days, it's walkability close to a city center, proximity to other amenities. Then if you add a new investment, well, then that might put put it over the edge and say, OK, well, this is even the city is investing in this. Now it's even got this train. Then for sure, then all of these people might move in and then you might see something. But in that case, I would also say that it's not it's not just. That investment, like it had all of the ingredients, and with this big population growth, it may have happened anyway. Um, but maybe that right. just sped it up and, and put it in that specific location. Yeah.
0: Are you saying sort of that the the investment sort of followed those changes in some cases, or you know, it's it's not the cause of them? And whether that investment came or not, those changes were probably going to result in some kind of shift, regardless.
1: Right. I mean, if you think about transit you know, a city, especially one light rail line, right, it costs billions of dollars. And the city Mm -hmm. wants some return on that investment, they're going to put it in a place that's most likely to see a return in investment in terms of economic development around a station, right? So they're going to put it in the places that are most likely to succeed. So I would say yes.
2: Well, so I guess, you know, if I wanted to Push back, you know, on on kind of devil's advocate side, or on, on people who are kind of most fervently of the belief that these investments make make a very big difference and really produce gentr- gentrifying outcomes. Like, isn't it usually the case that you're going to put these investments in places that have these kind of preconditions, and then and therefore like can we then say that well most of the time it does end up this way where an investment goes somewhere with the preconditions and then we get some kind of gentrifying outcome or would you also say that like even with the preconditions the gentrifying outcomes are not certainly not determined or not always that likely
1: yeah yeah i would say in those circumstances given those preconditions, right, in the, the prime areas, if you put in this investment, it would probably speed up the process, right? Okay. Because it's telling developers and it's telling residents that it's kind of giving them a signal saying, okay, the city is investing in this area. If it's an area of TOD, you know, putting in new sidewalks, they're, they're making it nicer. Um, and so all of those things will speed up this process. But if it were just the light rail, which is kind of what the narrative tends to be then we would see uniform changes along the line if it's one line right Um, but in the case of a lot of cities so I'm thinking of Charlotte which is put in this new light rail line those changes are most acute close to the city center in walkable areas in neighborhoods that were next to neighborhoods that have already gentrified but further up in these areas that have less desirable characteristics we don't really see many changes because again it's not it doesn't override all of those other things. It's not going to say, oh, we've got a trade now. I'm just going to ignore the, all of the other reasons that make this place less desirable to somebody.
2: And if I may go a little farther, and you don't necessarily have to sign on to this, if we're talking about neighborhoods that have these free conditions, that have the high population growth, that have high housing demand, etc., cetera, um, or growing housing demand, not building the the real, not putting the rail station there isn't going to stop gentrification you know what i mean i mean like the counterfactual is not necessarily like stasis in in these neighborhoods that we're talking about
1: correct because with all of that demand right developers are just looking where am i going to put this next uh, housing development or apartment complex to house all of these people who are moving in and right. so they tend to follow investments but if the investment wasn't there they would look at what are the the other trends? I mean, it's just it would happen eventually, in my opinion.
0: Cool. Okay, so for your study, you looked at rail lines built or extended in four cities: Newark, San Diego, Seattle, and St. Louis. Uh, all of these were opened or extended between two thousand five and two thousand nine, and you found kind of in line with these earlier this earlier work that evictions did not increase in these places, with one exception that we will get to. This is discussed in the intro of your paper, but you know, as as you mentioned, it sounds like the existing research on the subject seemed to point in the same direction. Can you give us a little more detail just on what you found for this study in particular?
1: Yeah. Um, so like you said, we looked at um, the rates of evictions and eviction filings rates in these four different cities. And We took what's called a quasi-experimental approach. So we looked at treatment neighborhoods or neighborhoods that were near the transit station and a set of control neighborhoods. So neighborhoods that were similar and following similar trends that didn't receive the station. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then we compared rates of evictions and eviction filing and said, okay, after this rail transit station opened, did the transit neighborhoods or the treatment neighborhoods, did their trajectory change in a way that was significantly different than the control neighborhoods? And so, as you just mentioned, uh, in basically all cases, we did not find a significant effect of the rail transit station opening on eviction filing rates. With this one little exception that for us is hard to explain. Um, So in the case of St. Louis, There was a spike in eviction rates in transit neighborhoods just after it opened, but that also corresponded, Mm -hmm. I think it was 2007, 2008, which was the height of the foreclosure crisis. So we don't know if that was some artifact of that, why it just happened in the transit neighborhoods, but it immediately went back down and the rest of the time period followed the same trend as the control neighborhoods. So it's questionable whether or not that played any role. We probably should talk to somebody in... St. Louis to figure out what happened in those areas. But other than that, we didn't find a significant impact.
0: We can get to maybe why possible reasons that St. Louis had different results. Um, But we can, I guess we can first just talk a little bit more about displacement and eviction and sort of what this all means and how it's measured because there's many different ways to do it. Obviously, displacement is, is extremely disruptive in people's lives. And, you know, linking this back to our discussion uh, a few weeks or months ago with Kristen Perkins, we know that the impacts of moving, for whatever reason, aren't always felt equally. Her work shows that the well-being of Black and Latino children, for example, on average, seems to be more negatively impacted than that of white children when they move, again, on average. People obviously have good reason to be concerned about displacement, but there doesn't seem to be much evidence really that these public investments are the thing causing it. So why do you think that this concern persists?
1: Well, I have a couple of thoughts. (laughs) Um, Well, so one, in the gentrification and displacement literature, there is sort of a divide between quantitative studies and qualitative studies, where quantitative Mm. studies have tried very, very hard using all kinds of imperfect data to capture this effect that qualitative researchers insist exists. So one explanation. Well, wow, that's well
2: said. That's <laughs> really well
1: said. <laughs> um, so one reason for this might be, and I'm going to credit my uh, co-author Isabel Nilsson for coming up with the term. It's the the means versus the extremes. So quantifiers mm-hmm. like myself, we study means, we study averages, we study trends, and if there's some high value, it kind of gets, uh, you know, leveled off in our analysis, and so we're not concerned with that. Whereas yeah. if you're a qualitative researcher, you're, you're going to go to that observation that just gets you know, uh, averaged out, and you're gonna report on what's going on in that area. So what we might call it an extreme or even an outright, it doesn't even have to be an outlife, just be a high value, right? Mm-hmm. And you're gonna talk about that. Um, so that's one big difference between this, why we can't capture it because perhaps it's not widespread everywhere, like we, for all the reasons we just talked about. And when we try to model things, we're not going to get that one or two observations of those neighborhoods. Another reason is is, it's something that's hard to measure is displacement. So what does it mean that somebody is displaced? It means that they've left involuntarily. So we have residential movement data sets where we can try to uh, quantify this, but those don't tell us the reasons why somebody has moved right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then qualitative researchers have also tried to to interview people, talk to them about why they've moved out of a neighborhood. Is it because there was a train that came in? Is it because your property values went up because of gentrification? But by definition, somebody who's displaced is no longer there. So those people are really, really hard to find and um, interview and talk to and figure out these reasons. So it's a difficult population to study. And then we've got this kind of disconnect.
0: And it does seem that even if you were able to ask them what caused them to leave or caused them to be evicted or, or why their rent went up, they might say, well, it was the train, but they don't know that that's true. And it could be. I don't mean to say that it's not. I just mean to say that it's probably impossible for an individual person to be certain of why, you know, their rent went up or their landlord decided, you know, I'm not going to I'm just gonna file an eviction rather than putting up with this, you know, late payment or whatever, which I was fine with in the past.
1: Right, and some of this also comes from uh, this distrust uh, between uh, planning <laughs> and uh, communities of color, right? Mm-hmm. So, this and so this has come up a, a bit in our qualitative research in, in Charlotte, where we talked to residents who said you know, we didn't ask for this train. If you had given us a billion dollars to spend on something, why didn't you fix crime or this like dilapidated hotel that's on the corner? Or if you were truly concerned about transportation, they didn't say this, but I'm thinking it for them, uh, why don't you give everybody a car in an auto-centric city? Mm Or one, a single rail line that goes one place is really not going to improve mobility and access to jobs, right? If it was truly about that. So there's this, this trust in uh, a lot of these communities that says, well, this investment is clearly not for us. This isn't catering to our needs. Nobody asked us if we wanted it. They must be doing it because they've got bigger plans. And that bigger plan could be that we leave and this neighborhood is replaced by a different population.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do think it's important to Acknowledge, um, you know, in particular the legacy of, of urban renewal and, and highway construction in the US, where these were things that were done for the benefit of primarily white communities. They went through communities of color, primarily black communities, but they weren't for them. And so, even though I don't think rail has exactly that same character, if you're sort of primed to see it that way, or you just don't find it to be something you personally care about using. I think it's it's easy to see why people might might reach that conclusion,
2: right. right? And yeah, I guess the the clear similarity there is that some form of the government has has promised you some benefit, uh, mm-hmm. or promised promised your community some benefit in the past that has that has turned out to be anything but. In the case of urban renewal, of course, and or fr- and freeway construction, and so that. You know, that I think is the through line there is that there was this promise. These were broken promises. And now you're coming again to say, well, we're going to do it differently this time. How do I know I can trust you about that? Or, you know, as Elizabeth pointed out, like in Charlotte, people might not see a use of of even a, a rail line coming through their neighborhood, even if they don't have a car or something. Mm hmm.
0: So let's talk a little bit about evictions and displacement and how we measure these things. Um, so eviction judgments in the court and eviction, eh, eviction filings um, are one way to measure it. And even though the data can be hard to collect and you know it isn't always comprehensive, one strength of using these is that they're pretty unambiguous. You know, an eviction is an eviction, and it can't really be mixed up with something where someone like leaves voluntarily. But informal evictions are very common, too, um, where landlords just tell a tenant they have to leave or they cut off their power. And some tenants you know know their rights and, and don't leave, but some do without much fuss. And that doesn't show up in eviction records or you know, we don't have a way of tracking that as a form of displacement. People also leave their homes because their rents rise to a price they can no longer afford or they just don't feel is worth it anymore. And even if that doesn't show up as an, ev- as an eviction, I think a lot of people would still consider that a form of displacement. And on top of all that, even if displacement does occur in some form, you can't always prove what caused it with the data available, as we kind of talked about earlier. So I know there's more to it even than this, but could you tell us, and maybe Mike, you can chime in, because I know you're also a, a, an expert on eviction in particular, what the different approaches are to measuring this and the challenges with measuring displacement?
1: Yeah. So some of it we talked about before, right, is getting, there is no data set. So we use these these proxies. Uh, so one data set that we looked at in the past with respect to transit and trying to get at this idea of displacement that's been used a lot in gentrification studies is the panel study on income dynamics, which is a sample of the population um, that's captured longitudinally and you can look at residential movements. But again, mm-hmm it's not involuntary. We we don't know why the person moved. So that's a significant limitation. Uh, other people have looked at tax records, but again, these are just getting at this movement from one place to another. So the bottom line is there is no perfect or even very good, I would say, data set to capture displacement. We said, well, we've, we've tried to study this all these other ways. We're unable to come up with this impact. It's still very much the narrative. Why don't we try something else? So that's where we, there was this uh, eviction data set. And we said, well, it, it's worth at least testing this hypothesis. We still couldn't find anything, but for all of the reasons you stated, it's still an imperfect measure of displacement.
2: Yeah. So, you know, in a couple of recent papers in Southern California, um, my co-authors, uh, Kyle Nelson, Ashley Gromis, and Xavier Quai have looked at eviction, generally trying to see what kind of neighborhood characteristics are associated with eviction. And, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap between our approach and and our our findings with yours, with some of your work, with your co-authors. Whereas, you know, I mean, for us, well, there's two things I want to talk about. One is kind of the data issue or like what what eviction is conceptually compared to displacement, because as we have talked about a little bit, like it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is like, where do we see more evictions? And, you know, at least as far as we can, you know, kind of torture the data, um, it doesn't seem to be the case where you see more formal, you know, court-based evictions in neighborhoods that are increasing in housing value, increasing in rent pressures, incre- you know, declining vacancy rates. You know, some of the indicators that you would think are showing a hot housing market or a rising housing market that you would think are pricing out the the lower, the, the, the local population, existing population, and or making landlords think, oh, I could get something better here. I could get somebody to pay more. I've got this tenant that's not particularly timely with the rent. I can, you know, squeeze them out of here, you know, by, by suing them. So, you know, where we find, you know, the most evictions are places where people of color, particularly African-Americans live, even kind of rising levels of those, of of people of color, um, where poverty is concentrated and almost zero evidence that like some kind of housing market heat is, is correlated to that. So that, you know, so that's the kind of the finding side of it, and then like conceptually, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, first we know that landlords evict people in a, through a few different means, right? There's there's ways you can just kind of threaten people that don't know their rights, um, you know, with an eviction, and they might leave. But what but what we're ultimately holding on to, and what I believe Elizabeth and her colleagues are holding on to, are like. Uh, court petitions, right, and court judgments, you know, and and you need some kind of case, you need, you need a tenant to have exercised in some kind of wrongdoing, you know, or not lived up to the contract or the lease, right? And so as a measure of displacement, I think it has a lot of power, but an obvious drawback that you need a tenant to what you're often picking up is that tenants are not paying or tenants are not living up to the lease in various ways. And you're also capturing that a particular landlord who isn't going to be randomly distributed across the city, a particular type of landlord is more or less litigious, right? More likely to have Mm -hmm. a lawyer, more likely to um, seek court redress for various things, including my tenant didn't do a thing that I that you know that they said they would.
0: Just to to clarify, you know, the point you're making, it sounds like if your lease expires and the landlord just says, I'm not gonna renew this lease, the tenant, I think again, would probably at many tenants at least would consider that displacement, but by this metric that would that would not qualify, right?
2: Yeah, that's not an eviction.
0: Yeah. Right? That's yeah. just Which, you know, as you say, like the strength of evictions is they're very clear on what they are. It's just a it's a subset. I think pairing that with your own research, though, on how evictions seem to be much more associated with, uh, you know, communities of color and and black people in particular um, and poverty rates. And actually, maybe useful to clarify if that includes Los Angeles, where uh, mm-hmm. yes. where landlords don't have the freedom to just end a lease. Right. Basically, you can only be evicted legally through an eviction filing and judgment.
2: Or or an LSX.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do want to actually just really quickly go back to what you were saying earlier, Elizabeth, about the extremes versus the means and how it, it seems like one possibility here is some people, when a rail line or what have you gets built, some people who wouldn't have been evicted... Or otherwise displaced are maybe just because of who their landlord is or or whatever and others maybe maybe they care more about staying and so they're better about paying the rent maybe they really value this thing and maybe there's a a balancing that's happening where it's not the same people who would have been evicted or displaced in lieu of the investment Um, but the total maybe doesn't change all that much because just people's priorities are different and you've changed the neighborhood such that it's more valuable for some people and, you know, not more for others or even if rents go up less so because your rents have gone up but you don't actually care about the rail so why would I pay this extra um, expense? Does that sound like a possibility to you?
1: It's a plausible explanation. (laughs) Um, When we use the, the PSID data to look at residential mobility, just more simply in rail transit neighborhoods. We just looked at uh, whether or not somebody moved out a few years after it it opened and that, we varied that year. And we found that like all other studies, lower income residents are more mobile from one time period to the next. They just tend to move around a lot. But the significance again of this rail variable was not significant. So living in a rail Mm -hmm. transit neighborhood that Uh, opened up a new rail transit neighborhood, played no role in somebody's likelihood of moving. Again, on average, and that was across the whole country, right? Um, So that could have easily smoothed out a case here or there where that's definitely happened and somebody could point to it and say, no, she's totally wrong. I saw it happen in this particular neighborhood at this particular point in time, but... Because
2: you you just you just brought up that, that hypothetical person pushing back in Charlotte, like do you encounter, I don't know, anywhere from advocates to, to students to you know people that you um, might public, might present to locally that say, "Oh, let me tell you about my neighborhood or let me tell you about this person." and, and like they they feel pretty strongly that this is that this is a big driver.
1: Well, I can tell you that I've had two interviews with the Charlotte Observer this past two weeks since the new census came out. And both times the headline that they ended up with after talking to me was, you know, uh, diversity increases everywhere except along the light rail line. And Mm. the share of white residents increased, I think it was 5,000% in these neighborhoods, specific neighborhoods close to the light rail line. So they run this headline. But if you dig deep into it, <laughs> deeper into it, right? Some of the the things that were happening in those neighborhoods were that they're in um, previously in industrial, light industrial areas, right? It's cheaper to put a rail line when you don't have to knock down houses. So it was underdeveloped land. There was hardly anybody living there to begin with. So it, it's a, a artifact of small numbers, right? You can get really high percentages when the share of residents increases by that much. But the story that they wanna sell in the newspaper was that it's it's because of this light rail, right? So part of it comes from, I think, how this is depicted. And there have been a lot of changes along the rail line. But again, if you disentangle that from all of the other things and you, you say, okay, but let's look specifically where the changes are happening along the right rail, light rail line, again, it's not everywhere. It's in the neighborhoods that are close to uptown. But this is something that's that's contentious and uh, it's expensive not everybody wants it, so it, it's easy to criticize. With residents though that we've talked to, especially lower income residents in neighborhoods that are further away from the center city and older uh, suburban neighborhoods, they they didn't really want to talk about the light rail when we had focus groups. I mean, they might have this initial concern like, oh mm. yeah, nobody asked us if we wanted that, but then it would easily get sidetracked into all other topics of conversation. So it, I don't think that it it really had a huge impact or hadn't at this point.
0: Interesting. It does feel like, I guess something that I, I often point out with these kinds of debates, a lot of this comes down to the fact this like austerity mindset or approach Of government over the past several decades, where part of the problem is we are only building a rail line in one neighborhood every decade. And so there's, of course, going to be a lot of attention there, whether it Mm. manifests as higher rents or evictions or whatever, it's going to be very noticeable. And arguably, it's just not it's not enough. Um, We should be investing more broadly in more neighborhoods kind of all at the same time. And it's just kind of the focused nature of these things and how rare these kinds of investments actually are that it is maybe part of the problem here. And if you uh, yeah, I could, if you had a rail line open to agree. many <laughs> places at once or in the same 5-year period, um, it would be hard to say like well you've just totally changed this one place when you've you really, you know, benefited a lot of places all at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think that just kind of boils down the bigger problem of the world of <laughs> the city is today, which is... Which we can't solve <laughs> here, unfortunately. Right. It's right. not about the train. I mean, see, if it's inequality, right? It's inequality yeah. in, in in space and in incomes and in education. And if the landscape were more equal, none of this would be a big deal because it wouldn't just be a few places that have everything and then a few places that seem to have nothing, which is the way a lot of our American cities are today, Right. So, if we yeah. can improve this inequality, that's the heart of the matter. Forget about the light rail again. <laughs> figure out a way. To- but i
0: do I do think it's important to acknowledge that, you know people have what powers they have. and as an advocate, if you really do believe that the light rail is is causing some kind of, if it's causing gentrification or whatever, you might have a way to influence that in a way that you probably can't fix or even you know, move the needle on income or wealth inequality. In your own city much less the the country which is really where it has to happen so I want to give give people their due that like they're not necessarily acting irrationally at least if they think this is the problem you know part of the problem even if they understand it's a symptom of the problem there's I think a, a, a correct recognition that you probably as an individual or even as a as a group of individuals in a city can't really solve the the root cause
1: Sure. And I think another fair criticism of something like light rail, which is very expensive. I mean, I like trains. Um, don't <laughs> get me wrong. But uh, in the in a lot of these cities, it's not going to do much for solving transportation problems. Right. They're, they're autos. They're designed around the automobile. So if you could take it, is is that the best use of a billion dollars for addressing transportation problems? Right. Or with something else, with straightening out cul-de-sacs somehow. Again, I don't know how because I'm not a planner, <laughs> but evening out you know, these disconnected roads and older suburban neighborhoods in a way mm-hmm. that made access between uh, low-income individuals who are increasingly out in the suburbs and low-wage jobs. Like, If you could spend a billion dollars on that, yeah, not that be cool? Bus
0: lanes, you could get so many bus lanes with a billion dollars.
1: Yes. Right, and bus lanes, but again, the infrastructure isn't really there, especially in right, right. like Charlotte. So, yeah. if you could here in LA, we've at least got the we've got
0: the grid, but we've yep. got that going for us.
1: So, grid the streets Wait, put in bus lanes,
2: big roads going in straight lines. We could
0: <laughs> send
2: many buses down. There. We have plenty yes. of those.
0: <laughs> do Do we know anything um, in in your study uh, about the demographics of these evictions? Part of why I'm curious mm-hmm. about this because I don't want to. I don't want to just dismiss the fact that, you know, St. Louis did see an uptick in evictions in these transit neighborhoods relative to the controls. It was like a pretty the significance was at the 10 percent level. It was, you know, not a super, super strong um, connection, but it's there. And I'm wondering if demographics, as, as Mike talked about, might have something to do with this, in part because, you know, St. Louis just has a larger black population. And and black households tend to experience eviction at higher rates. Is there maybe something going on there? Um, I know that Newark has a similar black population share of the population. So, you know, if that was the sole answer, we might expect to see a similar re- result there, and we didn't. But what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, well, first, we don't we don't have data on the race of the evictions. But I don't mm-hmm. think that that's it. The reason being is because we, when we did this um, selection of our cases in our control neighborhood, our treatment and control neighborhoods, we used this propensity score matching technique, which tries to find neighborhoods that are matched very similarly across ah, race okay. and income. So we kind of control for that in the onset and say these two neighborhoods are very similar. They have the same share of black residents. And for some reason... Two very similar neighborhoods. The transit ones saw that immediate spike and then dropped back down.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. And uh, just to do a call back to another one of our earlier interviews with Evan Mast, another possibility I was thinking about here about why we don't see um, the eviction that a lot of people fear might be, you know, on the one hand, you're building this rail line and maybe there is some gentrification pressure that we're not catching in in these studies but on the other hand a lot of times new housing development also accompanies these and what we've seen with past studies is that rents tend to stabilize in nearby buildings when these buildings are built um, and even it seems like displacement might fall a little bit too i think uh, kate pennington's work showed that for san francisco so don't really have a question for that but, but uh, just to think about like how many different things are going on here at the right. same time where it's not just that a rail line is being built and then that's that's the end of the story
1: yeah absolutely that's kind of one of our running hypotheses of why we we see these null null effects everywhere is because there is housing in TOD neighborhoods built right around those stations that mm-hmm. captures a lot of that demand and it's housing that's directly tailored to the type of person who wants to live in this um, type of TOD neighborhoods in the U.S. I guess. Um, so, and, and in Charlotte, at least the impacts are really concentrated around the rail transit station. When you go further away from the, from the neighborhood, it's hard to tell that there was any impact of a transit line, I would say. So new development in terms are, are, of,
0: in terms of ridership or in terms of development or in terms of the
1: de- development or changes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Got it. Yeah. And I, I, I should acknowledge that, some people think that the development itself is also exacerbating gentrification and displacement even more, but the, the evidence we have mostly points in the opposite direction.
2: You know, at the outset, Elizabeth, you, you I think, covered kind of the bigger picture of all of the work that, that you and your co-authors have done um, on not just this specific question of transit uh, in Potential transit-induced gentrification, as measured by eviction, um, you know. But if there's if there's anything we missed uh, about kind of this this bigger picture, because you know our format for this podcast is to talk very specifically about one paper. Um, but you know, if there's if there's something else on on this very important body of research that that you've you've uh, engaged in, you know, then that would be good to hear.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the other kind of stories and other papers that we've been working on that comes to mind is I I was giving a a presentation at a conference, I think it was with planners, and somebody stood up and said, No, no, you're totally wrong. Transit does cause displacement, and I can tell you, or gentrification, and I can tell you that in Durham, North Carolina, there's plans to build this light rail, so this was maybe five years ago. There's plans to build the light rail, and already there's new construction going in, gentrification, and it's all because of this. And then they canceled the light rail. Mm,
0: So one of the things
1: that we've looked at is if it was just the train, right? What we would expect is maybe property values kept going up as they announced it. And then if they cancel the train, property values should crash, right? That's a wild natural
2: experiment, yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, so so we we got all quickly. Well, you just have to. <laughs> yeah, we don't obviously find that effect, but it, the announcement effect was strong enough to, right, just signal to the developers again, which kind of circles back to those points of this this development is is coming to come, and the developers just need a signal on where to go next and a train or any other infrastructure is just telling them this is this is the next place to go, but it would probably come anyway. You don't even need the train. You just have to pretend that you're going to have a train.
2: Right. If developers did not go out of business in Durham after that announcement or move to Chapel Hill or something, then <laughs> then I, I, I think that's a, a pretty strong finding.
0: Well, I think we can close this out, Professor Delmel. Anything else you want to share or any, anywhere we uh, should direct our listeners to your work?
1: Uh, well, they could just, I guess, do a, a Google Scholar and, <laughs> and find the work there. Uh, I will also give another shout out to my, my um, partner in crime, Isabel Nilsson, who was the two of us have worked uh, together on all of these projects. So I tend to go do all of the speaking and she does all of the work.
0: Oh, that's a, that, <laughs> that's, that's a good a- deal. She's a good
2: a good person to have around then definitely. Uh, well well I'll I'll ask one one other question in that vein. What what is what is next? Um, you know, what is there is is there a focal point of of your sabbatical research wise.
1: Yeah, so we're we're pretty tired of studying the train on, honestly. Uh, and we've been to You've told a us all we need project. to know.
2: <laughs> we now, now we know the answer.
1: So I I, I got this new obsession that actually was was a result of studying the train when we were walking through neighborhoods and um, trying to figure out what was going on, what was gonna happen in this neighborhood. It's right near the light rail station, but there were these small houses, nothing seemed to be going on. And so I pulled out my phone and I got out Zillow. And I started to read the property advertisements. And it said, you know, this is the next up and coming neighborhood. This is right next to the light rail line, you know, a builder's dream. And so I became obsessed with scraping Zillow advertisements and analyzing the text of um, property advertisements. So that's been our, our project now. So we've been looking at property text analysis. I have a PhD student who's been doing... Some work on discriminatory language in rental housing or restrictive language kind of building off of this eviction thing like where are um, all of these restrictive languages most um, present in the housing market and so over here we're trying to do something similar with the Dutch housing market and, and kind of compare what amenities are marketed and targeted towards certain home buyers between different Dutch cities.
2: That sounds very fantastic and interesting. I would have no so a dirty secret about my London sabbatical that I'm now telling our vast listenership is is that I'm not here to study anything about London. So um, <laughs> I, I would I would find trying trying to study Zillow, the Hague, or Zillow uh, London to be a very daunting uh, and intimidating challenge, and then. I'm glad I'm still studying the United States from here. That seems...
1: Well, I, I found some co- co- some uh, colleagues, some research partners who can at least translate the Dutch for me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Okay, Professor Delmel, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You can learn more about Professor Delmel's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and you can find Mike at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening to the UCLA Housing Voice podcast and for telling your friends and colleagues about the show. It really helps. See you next time.